Hey everyone, welcome to the Work Friends Podcast, where we bring meaningful conversations to you. I'm Jim Brubaker, and I'm here with my co-host Work and real friend Ainsley Stanley. This season, we're chatting with people from different walks of life to hear their stories and how God has been faithful throughout. So clean the house, go for a drive, do whatever you need to do, and enjoy today's episode. Today on the podcast, we're chatting with Evan Dunn. Evan is a staff member at Portage Ontario, which is a drug rehabilitation organization in Alora, and he actually used to work at Youth Unlimited YFC in the Tri-Cities. He also likes to do stand-up comedy on the side, and his story brings a unique perspective because of his experiences. You're going to hear Evan share his journey with homelessness as a teen, addiction, and God's redemption. It's going to be really eye-opening to hear, so enjoy. Well, Evan, for the third time, welcome. We are so excited to have you here today on the show. Um, to start things off, for people to get to know you a little bit better, tell us about yourself. What makes Evan, Evan? Um, okay, what makes Evan, Evan? I am Evan because my parents decided to call me Evan at birth. And Evan actually means um, God is gracious. And I almost passed away as a child, so it, the, the name is fitting. So God was gracious to me and my family, my, my family and I for keeping me alive. So uh, about a little bit about myself, I have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So I'm, um, I'm not neurotypical. Not that there's anything wrong with neurotypical people. I just was on medication for most of my childhood, which taught me a lot about how crappy medication can be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but it helped me. I'm not hating on Ritalin, but um, that's a big part of my life. My experience of, um, having ADHD. What else? I am pretty funny now and again. Um, I have a obsession with people. I really, really find people interesting. So a lot of my life has been geared towards finding unique ways of connecting with people. And I've seen that in my professional life and in my, um, personal life not that that's such an anomaly I I suppose most people like people but I guess some people are fascinated about things more than people per se but yeah I'm interested in people cool all right we like to do this thing sometimes we call them rapid fire fast facts so I'm just gonna shoot a bunch of random questions at you to answer where did you grow up um I grew up in Mississauga what is your favorite drink I think my favorite drink in the entire world would probably be Coke. What is your biggest pet peeve? Um, I hate when people interrupt me. Um, not that if you two interrupt me, it's fine. It's your podcast. Like, I totally embrace that. But, <laughs> I mean, there's nothing that bothers me more than someone who interrupts during meetings. Or, And, I mean, there's accidents. Like, I've, I've interrupted people. We get that. But when it's, like consistently interrupting mm. people i i don't know how to fully forgive that person i mean i, th- I think that I, I need to go to the lord on a walk now and again and talk about the people that i've been br- encountered in meetings that talk too much and interrupt people and i have to go jesus please help them and their <laughs> family because their families especially because it's probably difficult for them the most <laughs> true true like, um how Father, forgive them for what they've done. That's how I feel. <laughs> I almost interrupted you when you were talking about 
not liking people to interrupt you. I'm so sorry. No, you're allowed. This is your podcast. I'm just right, a guest. Right, 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 right. <laughs> okay, how long have you been married? You're married now, if the listeners didn't know. I've been married almost a year. Almost wow. a year. Crazy. So June 20th will be our anniversary. Exciting, exciting. Great. I love her. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Um, what has been your favorite COVID activity? Call of Duty Warzone. I play Call I do know what it is. I do. I just say I played Call of Duty once on my friend's brother's Xbox. And I played like three rounds and I died instantly, like every single time. And so I'll never play it again because I was just so bad. I'm personally more of a Wii Sports Resorts kind of gal. So mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're into Wii Sports. That's like so youth worker of you. Yeah. <laughs> That's like so YFC of you. So YFC. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. That's awesome. What is the coolest thing that you've ever done? I have no idea. That's a really hard question. The coolest thing? Like, define cool. You pick. Open-ended question. Okay, I think cool for me in this context means spontaneous. Okay, okay. What's the most spontaneous thing I've ever done? All right, on safe side, I'll just say the coolest thing I've ever done was get married. Or does that not count? That counts. Brianna will approve of that answer. (laughs) Yeah, I think it is. Honestly, I I, I suppose it's not the most spontaneous, though. That would be untrue for me to say. There was a lot of planning that went involved uh, when, when, when planning for a wedding or asking someone to marry you. It's like saying to another human being, I want to see your face every day. So I better like you. Or vice versa. It's <laughs> true. You're not wrong. <laughs> Other than that, I'd say um, one of the coolest things I've ever done was uh, stand-up comedy. I think that was pretty cool. Like when I used to do that, I I just thought it was pretty cool because it was out of my comfort zone. And we enjoyed it. So, I mean, maybe one day Evan's stand-up comedy will be back. Maybe one day when the COVID is over, I, I'll be able to do more things. Yes, that will be fantastic. Okay, this is one of my favorite questions. What is your go-to karaoke song? Um, Sweet Caroline. Oh, mm. classic. That's a good Sorry. one. That's very youth worker of you. <laughs> that yeah. is. It's also very, like, basic of me. Like, really? That's the karaoke song you choose? I, like, I'm, a, I'm ashamed of myself for even having that as my first go-to answer, but it's true. It's the easiest song to sing, really. That's true. <laughs> the one where you just go, bop. Bop, and that's about like that's everyone like, sings along with it so yeah it's a good audience one it's a good audience one but like when was the last time we had a karaoke sing-along in ontario like, i don't know that's illegal now so <laughs> <laughs> oh no this reminds me of a horrible thing so there's this nightclub in waterloo which you would know about most likely chainsaw <laughs> yeah. it closed down when the pandemic mm. hit I think around that time, which makes sense because, you know, I don't know if they're well known for great food, but it's a fun place to go sing. And now I can't do that ever again. Sad. I'm very sorry to hear that. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay. One more, a little bit more serious. If you weren't working as a counselor, what would you be doing? Um, honestly, I would probably be in sales somewhere. Yeah, I would be as I'd be a salesperson. And he still have that unmuzzled ox ego. <laughs> oh yeah, even worse. I would probably metamorphose into like a really kind of crappy dude who only cares about money. 
and I would probably just work 60 hours a week and just make money, which isn't bad. But I know for sure, if I didn't go down this career path, I would have definitely been in sales and nothing that there's, there's nothing inherently wrong in sales. I just, out of every part-time job I've had, the most fun I've had at a job is been when I can increase my earning by working harder. And like, whether you're a bartender or a server or I don't know, uh, some kind of sales associate somewhere. If you know that you can make more by working harder and there's a, like a pretty strong correlation between how much you earn and how hard you work, then the incentive for hard work is like quite strong. And I've had a couple jobs like that, like part-time jobs. And I really enjoyed it because I just feel like I'm getting the most bang for my buck, you know, like the ox is being fed. Like Eastside Mario's, right? Yeah, like people underestimate the earning power someone can have working a part-time job at Eastside Mario's. There were days, not often, but I've left Eastside's with over $500 in cash. And that's just like people passed as like, yo, here's your Caesar salad. Here's your bada boom, bada bing, bada boomers. Here's, Here's your spaghetti and meatballs. Come again. And like, you'd be shocked. People like would leave you tens, twenties, fives. You just had to be nice and then apologize when anything went wrong. Wow. Basically a minister. (laughs) Minister of the pasta. (laughs) Just dissing out those pastas. I hated when Christians gave me, um, and I'm a Christian, but I hated when Christians (laughs) um, give me, what's it called? Gospel tracks instead of money for tips. That was the worst. One of them was actually disguised as a hundred dollar bill. And for real. And I was so happy. I was like, for real? Like I almost felt like I was on a Dr. Phil episode and like this was like a, <laughs> or some kind of like Oprah show or like Ellen DeGeneres. And someone was just videotaping my reaction. Like, are you serious? Hundred dollar bill? And then I they left. It was a gospel track. And I thought, <laughs> this, this is so wrong. This was literally designed for servers. Mm. Not to hate on you. If you drop gospel tracks, just leave a 20 minute or like a tip. <laughs> I personally have never done that before. Never tip? That's a new one. No, I've tipped. Oh, oh no, I always Just not tip. tipped I've in never... gospel tracks. <laughs> no, that's a new one for me. Maybe you'll try it. Maybe, but I, I personally prefer other ways of, you know, sharing the good news of Jesus. So yeah, it's a bit impersonal leaving a gospel track. Mm, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> like we've learned so much about you just through those like 10 questions. Um, but you're going to be sharing your story. And I'm really thankful that, um, yeah, when you worked at YFC, it's just like, dang, you meet a lot of cool people and you see how God has moved and worked in their life. Yep. And I think specifically for you to see how God has really brought a lot of healing and directed your path that it, like, it's really, really cool. It just kind of leaves me a little speechless, you know, like, God's goodness in people's life. So let's start from the beginning. Tell us about your upbringing. What was growing up like for you? Yeah, I'll tell you about that. I also wanted to say thanks for sharing that. I mean, I, you gave me the goosebumps. So it's, it's it, true. It's cool to see God's goodness in people's lives. It, it does leave you with a good feeling. Um, well, what ages are we talking about here? Are we talking about like ages three to seven? Like ages like... Are we talking pre-puberty, puberty? Yeah, like... pre-puberty. Okay, pre-puberty. Yeah. <laughs> Life for Evan Dunn was 
pretty good. I mean, I had two parents who desperately tried to make my life and my siblings' lives better. And they worked extremely hard to finish uh, school. Both of my parents went back to school when I was a little boy. My dad became, um, got his CGA at the time, which is now CPA. So he's a certified professional accountant. And my mom went back to school to become a registered nurse. And they were all about the saving of the money growing up. And they really instilled a spirit of frugalness in me. And that involved only buying Value Village clothing as a child or getting hand-me-downs. I don't know if you're familiar with hand-me-downs, but basically there's someone in your family who's a lot bigger than you, maybe fatter, larger, and you get to wear their clothes. And your parents go, (laughs) perfect, this fits, sort of, but it's free, and that's what matters. My mom used to get me uh, haircuts with some lady in a basement in Mississauga growing up and she would give me bowl cuts and I never wanted them because it looked like I had a Mario mushroom hat on my head. Like I looked like I was a walking orange mushroom, <laughs> but she was like, wow, he's so cute. Look at his orange hair in the sunlight glistening <laughs> off of it. I love this mushroom cut. So I was walking around with some really like spicy mushroom cuts, like walking around like with that style, you know, like that mushroom cut style, that bowl cut. I do know. I also had them. <laughs> Chad had a bowl cut. I thought they were only done to boys, but they did I that too. Boys too. That's yeah. that's even worse. Yeah, it was it was a humbling humbling moment. I actually asked my mom about this the other day, and I'm like, Mom, why would you actually tell the hairdressers to give me a bowl cut or mushroom cut, whatever? She's like. Jen, you did gymnastics. Like, easy. I'm like, people thought I was a boy. (laughs) Not just kids, adults. Adults thought, my friend's dad thought I was a boy. And I'm like, ugh, anyways. I derailed what you were saying there. But yeah, I'm never going to give my child a bowl cut. I'm just going to, you're hearing it here. Yeah, good for you. I think that's right. Don't give your children bowl cuts. If they come to an age where they can object to them. I mean, if they're like two or three, can they comprehend really the devastating of impacts of how horrible their haircut looks? But if they're like six or seven and they're starting to realize that their other classmates don't have bowl cuts, maybe give them a re- give it a rest, you know, like stop with the bowl cuts. <laughs> but I haven't seen many of those lately. Maybe like they're just against our charter of rights and freedoms or something like that. And, you know, somebody <laughs> just stood up for children's rights and was like no more as they should (laughs) as they should okay did you want to touch any more on your upbringing you were talking about growing up being frugal having a mushroom cut was there anything else you wanted to add to that sure there is more to add so when I was a child I had thought that I was normal like all the other kids and I don't mean to infer that I thought of myself as special like in a like a special abilities way I just thought we were all similar and alike as a child. And then my parents were like, actually, no, you're different. And the teachers were like, actually, no, you're different. And then I had to see a psychologist. So I went to the psychologist 
in Mississauga in his basement where he had all these toys. And he was like, we're going to ask you some questions, Evan. And then I brought him my Lego sculptures and they determined I had ADHD and OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, No, no. At that point, it was an anxiety disorder. Later on, I was diagnosed with OCD. But from that moment on, my childhood in, in some sort, in some level, became defined by having ADHD. So there was all these different drugs they'd give me for like a period of time to, to figure out which drug would work the best in terms of helping me focus. And then finally, they got like the right concoction. But I remember always looking at all the other kids and thinking, why don't they have to take pills? But they could be taking pills at home, I suppose, or they could have been, uh, I should say. But that was like a really big part of my childhood was that experience and often feeling less than because I was in trouble a lot. I was kicked out of class a lot. I had trouble focusing on topics that my other peers seemed to have no trouble focusing on. Easily distracted, you know, difficulty with emotional regulation and, um, but other than that, it was a good childhood overall. Like my parents made it really good. Like they, they did what was best for me or they did the best they could with what they had. So yeah, overall childhood, I give it probably like 4.5 out of five stars. Wow. That's good. That's good. And then beyond that, like pretty normal childhood with my parents. Okay, so getting yeah. a little bit older, getting into like more of your teen years and stuff like that, what was what was that like? That was a really bad time. I mean, during my like early teen years, like 14, starting then, life was not fun for me at all. So my parents, um, they sent me to a public high school, even though I went to like this Christian private school growing up. And so I started to go to school and in the public system. And I only knew like one guy there in the whole school and we weren't really friends. So I started grade nine off with no friends and I didn't really make any friends until like, I'd say like the last two months of grade nine. So for like the majority of my grade nine experience, it was filled with anxiety, depression, um, and suicidal thoughts. And I really did want to die as a 14 year old. I hated my life because I would go to school and be made fun of for being a redhead. I'd be put down. I would eat my uh, food sometimes in the gymnasium alone in the gym room, like the gym changing room. I would eat my lunches in a stall alone, like in the washroom at times. I had people uh, bully me in the halls. Like I got pushed into lockers and people would say things like, Oh, you dumb ginger. And I had someone even on my bus once an aggressor um, find me on the bus and put snow on my head and say, cool off ginger. And the whole bus started laughing and I started crying. It was so embarrassing for me. And I started to become angrier and angrier and angrier about these experiences. I would hide on the days that the bus came. I I would try to run away like from the bus stop, but my mom would find me like, no, you got to go to school. And I didn't know how to tell my mom 
that I was getting bullied because there was such a, a level of shame. Like I felt this sense of shame. Like I had failed what was supposed to be done as a teenager, which in the sitcoms I watched growing up that involved having lots of friends and getting along with people, enjoying high school. But my experience of high school was the opposite. I had no friends, barely, and I hated being in high school because I never really fit in for grade nine. So that was like a defining moment in my life, the experience I had in grade nine. So much so that I, I, I wanted to kill myself and I became angrier at home. It's like I couldn't lash out at school because it wasn't safe to do so. I was a small redhead. And unfortunately, that anger was redirected to a safer person, safer persons, which were my parents. Now, they had made mistakes like in their life as being parents and I've forgiven them and they've forgiven me for my mistakes as a child. And one thing I respect my parents for, especially my dad, is um, his willingness to take accountability, admit his wrongs and um, say sorry. And I think that's like such a good attitude to have, like a, a, like a mature attitude as an adult, especially a parent to say that they're sorry and that to own up for mistakes they've done. And I've had to own up more for more mistakes than them, for sure. But like I started getting into fights with my dad, like kicking, hitting, pushing. Like my dad and I, you know, had some troubles. We didn't really get along. We butted heads in high school. And my mom and I butted heads. And they really just wanted to help me out, right? So they'd take me to the doctor. Evan's angry. Evan's depressed. And it the, the, the root of the problem never was addressed. That was, you know, going to counseling or something like that. I think I would have done really well. I've done a lot better if I just had some kind of outlet. Like if I were to speak to a youth worker, there was no youth workers for me to speak to. It was just such an isolating, lonely time. So I know some of that probably led to this because a big part of your story is your kind of journey through addiction. Um, So how much of that kind of contributed to that? And what kind of was the stage that was set for you transitioning into kind of struggling with, with drug addiction? Sure. Thanks for asking. Um, it 100% contributed to me um, becoming addicted to drugs. I don't believe people become addicted to drugs because they have a great life and things are going well for them. Lots of people experiment with drugs and they stop. A lot of people use drugs now and again, and it never takes over their life. People become addicted to drugs because of one thing, trauma. Every addict has been traumatized. Not every traumatized person becomes an addicted person. But every single person who's addicted to drugs has dealt with a some level of trauma in their life. So I, I, duly, I, I truly believe that I was traumatized as a teenager. You know, every day forced to go to an environment where you feel unsafe. You got people pushing you, hitting you, calling you names. So not only was I physically unsafe, but emotionally. And then to come home and have const, constant conflict with my parents, you know, led to um, a self-image of myself that was very unhealthy. Like my view of myself, my perception of myself was so like tainted. I didn't have like an accurate view of my uh, worth as a human being. I thought I was worthless. I really, truly did. And not to like, you know, overdo it and say, oh, my life was so hard. I was so hard done by. No, I wasn't. I had food in, on my plate. I had a roof over my head. I had parents who loved me. But at the end of the day, you know, being ostracized as a teenager, like a young teen, being put down in front of your peers daily are devastating 
for a 14 year old. Like they're hard on any adult. They're hard on any person. But when you have a when you have a teenager who validates themselves and seeks to understand the world based on their interactions with people their own age, their peer group, having your peer group ostracize you, put you down and belittle you at the age of 14 causes damage to your mental health and to your um to your well-being. You know, as an adult now, it's much more tolerable to deal with people who don't like me because I have so many people who do like me and I have a wife and friends. And if someone were to say something unkind to me, it's like, whatever. Not that I'm immune to, to mean comments, but I just have so much positive validation from so many other sources. But like when you're a teenager and you're young and, and you don't have options, as many options as you might realize, it's it's devastating. And I think it's so important, the work that you both do working with youth at Youth Unlimited. I mean, it's it's crucial. It's so important. Yeah, I think the longer that I worked at Youth Unlimited YFC, the more that, again, YFC is not the be-all, end-all thing. But speaking into our young people's lives is so important um, mm-hmm. because it is like, yeah, high school is tough. Like it's not always, I personally, I mean, overall, I would say that I enjoyed high school, but looking back, I wish I would have done things differently because I saw people who struggled and I didn't do anything. But for you personally, can you walk us through your personal journey through addiction and then what healing looked like for you? Because I think like you grew up in a Christian home, right? Like you like learn the stories, knew the things, right? And still like, yeah, addiction was something that you wrestled with. So I just really appreciate your, the voice that you have to this because you went through it. It's not just like an us and them mentality where like, oh, those people over there who wrestle with addiction, uh, they just need to make better life decisions. That makes me sick to my stomach. But yeah, yeah, walk us through your personal journey and what healing looked like for you. Yeah, thanks. Sure. So the addiction... I had was characterized by uh, poly drug use, uh, lots of different kinds of drugs. And that's characteristic of many youth who struggle with addiction. There aren't too many youth that have one drug they're addicted to. Normally, it's a plethora of drugs. It's more like a smorgasbord of drug use. And then when someone who experiences addiction, who um, then continues to use, um, typically they find one or two drugs that they use um over the rest but it all began however with marijuana use and personally i don't see marijuana as a a problem in our society like marijuana being legalized but i do see a problem with marijuana being used by young people it is not a healthy drug to it's not a it's not a healthy choice for people under the age of 25 to to use especially teenagers it, it it's completely unhealthy for teenagers to use recreational recreationally marijuana it's really damaging and i know a lot of people say i use marijuana as a, like teenagers will say i use marijuana to deal with my anxiety i use marijuana to deal with my depression and what i'm really hearing is i use marijuana to avoid dealing with my depression i use marijuana to avoid dealing with my anxiety I use marijuana to avoid dealing with my problems. Marijuana use as a, as, a, as a young person has long lasting impact. And many of those impacts we're not even fully aware of. It, it's proven, proven to impact people's ability to learn complex concepts. So 
I mean, if you, if you're a young teenager and you want to continue to do well in school, I mean, using marijuana isn't the best thing you could do for yourself in terms of preparing for adulthood and preparing for, you know, university or college. Then again, if someone is prescribed marijuana, I, I do believe then that that's like the best option for them because their doctor said so. And people are prescribed marijuana for different reasons, but typically youth aren't prescribed marijuana often. So it started with marijuana. I enjoyed marijuana a lot and I used it every day. And that's when things started to go a little south, not because marijuana made me like this violent, angry, frustrated person. I was dealing with pain, you know? I had, a, I had a level of pain in my life and I found that marijuana was a way to alleviate that pain. It's not that I chose to use because it was so fun. Yes, there were times where I used because it was fun, I, I guess, but I would gravitated towards using every day because of pain. That's why people begin using drugs continuously, pain. And then eventually when I didn't have it, I became angry and more frustrated and upset. And my parents didn't want me to live in the house anymore, their home while I was using. So I left home at 16 and I moved into a youth shelter in Cambridge called Argus Youth Shelter. And I just was able to use every day. I just used every day, lived there, uh, good people. but. I uh, eventually started using other drugs because they were available. And then this cycle of addiction began to start because previously it wasn't really like I was addicted to drugs. It was more like I'm using now and again, but my parents were like, no. And then once I moved out and things became bleak and hopeless for me, that's when it would became like really continuous, like mm -hmm. using multiple times a day, like when I get up in the morning, wait, use, like at lunchtime, use. If I didn't have marijuana, I would take pills, painkillers. And um, I would do strange things in order to continue to get high. Like if I only had one pill where I know it would take two pills to feel something, I would drink alcohol with painkillers or lorazepam in order to have a, um, I forget the term for it, but it's like this term where, each drug works with each other in such a way that everything's intensified. Like the Im impact of the drug is intensified. The effect of the drug is intensified. I went to rehab at 16. I left and used drugs again. Then I went to rehab again after being in a, um, a mental health unit at uh, Cambridge Memorial for a month because I overdosed and I um, stabbed myself, which uh, is really strange, but I overdosed on the drug. And during that period of being overdosed, I stabbed myself in the arm. So I had to get staples and then I had to um, go to the hospital for a while. And during all this time, like I had tried other ways of dealing with my pain. Like I tried self-harm, like I would cut myself, like not where anyone could see, but on my upper arms, I would take a shredded knife and I would, I would harm myself. And that can become addicting as well, in a sense which is strange, but that, that does happen to people, especially people who struggle with borderline personality disorder. And that's not to say that everyone who has borderline personality disorder uses, but most, most of them struggle with that or have struggled with that. 
And, and there was a period of time where I almost was diagnosed with a personality disorder. Like it was on the table. Like when I had discussions with people who were over overseeing me that, that, that was brought up, but um, yeah, life was like really bad. It was crappy. Like not being able to graduate with my friends in high school. Cause eventually I did go to a different high school and, and things got a lot better. I went to a, a smaller high school in Breslau and you know, I just had a very low self-esteem. And then finally, you know, there was more homeless shelters, in different cities, more drug use, more issues with my family. Finally, at 18, I went to Teen Challenge. And at Teen Challenge, I was able to redefine what faith lived in action looks like. I was able to redefine what my faith journey involves and learn that God's good and that he is a real entity that can help anyone. And just by saying that, I'm not saying something that everyone finds popular, you know, to say that they believe in a God that's real, despite all the horrible things that happen in the world. You know, it's not really a popular opinion to say that you believe in God, especially a God that's supposedly all good and all powerful, yet all these horrible things continue to happen. But I I believe in God. And during my times of struggle, when I started this year-long faith journey at Teen Challenge to overcome my addiction, I had my, my lens changed, like my, my worldview changed. I became informed by the Bible. I felt nur- nourished by different positive relationships at this center. I had great counseling experiences working, within, um, working with a coach there where I'd go to a counseling once per week. Uh, a counselor. And I, I just found that all those, all those experiences compounded towards me being healed from addiction, because I was able to deal with my problems in a social context and develop really nurturing, positive, powerful relationships. And that's like, you know, the short version, but um, I could talk a little bit about my experiences of being a youth who's homeless, what that was like for me. Well, for starters, it was eye opening. Mm. Um, When you're a a youth and you become homeless in the Waterloo region, which is the region I spent most of my time being homeless, you are submerged into a different subculture. And there are entire different worlds that exist beneath what you see on a typical day of being yourself in this area. And I was able to pass through that veil as a teenager who was homeless. And I saw an entirely different world with different characters. I saw human traffickers. I saw people who were being human trafficked. I saw violence. I saw drug dealers. I saw people addicted to crack. I saw people addicted to heroin. I encountered a world that I wasn't used to. It was so ugly. Like, I mean... There are so many people and youth in our society today that are struggling. And it's easy to think, oh, people don't fall through the cracks. We have a great system in Canada. People fall through the cracks. Young people fall through the cracks. People go missing. And this is happening daily. I mean, maybe things have changed since I was a teen. But when I was a teen and I lived on the streets for a bit, kids died. And there, I've met young girls who were being human trafficked. It's easy to read a headline on a newspaper and to think, oh yeah, that stuff happens far away. Or does that really happen here? It happens here. It's horrible. 
And things got so dark during that time because I just saw the worst sides of everyone. You know, when you hang out with people that are primarily addicted to drugs, you see like the most wretched side of them in the side of yourself. Like I believe that anyone is capable of change, especially with God's help, Like that people change. I believe that. And I do not look down on people who are addicted to drugs because I myself was addicted to drugs. In fact, I don't think the stigma is helpful at all. I think we should not have this horrible stigma against people addicted to drugs. But when you live with someone addicted to drugs, it's not pleasant. When you interact with other people who are addicted to drugs or who experience drug addiction, it's not pleasant, especially if you're involved in what they're doing. There is violence, there is stealing, there is lying, there is cheating. There's just so many things that aren't great for anybody. And when you're a teenager and you're interacting with adult people who are using drugs, you know, you pick up a lot of bad habits. And I started to mimic and emulate all of those negative influences in my life, like those negative influencers. And I came to a place where at 18, I thought, if I continue down this road of using drugs and act as if I'm like one of these adults and act like the people I'm interacting with forever, I will be nowhere. I will die. I will live my life in poverty or somebody will, somebody will hurt me. I'll, I'll, I'll die. And I thought about all those youth that I met that were struggling, that fell through the cracks. And I thought to myself, if I ever get out of this and have a, a normal life again, I want to be able to help people journey with people who are, are really struggling and need someone to just walk alongside them for part of their journey. So it taught me a lot about life. I, I saw a lot of it and it opened my eyes to what really matters as, as, a, as a teenager. Like I thought I, I, I suddenly became aware of how important family is, how important my faith, faith is, how important structure and stability is. So all in all, I think God like refined me through those experiences. Like I, I came up person a less judgmental person as well i mean i came out of my addiction with way less negative thoughts towards people who are different than me like full spectrum different like i'm like super open now like maybe even like too open like if i were to really share what i think and feel people would be like are you even christian whoa like is that really what you think but no really like i've i've changed and there are a lot of Christians who are loving and caring, but I have also met a lot of Christians that aren't, you know, that are very judgmental and they like to look at certain groups of people and go, oh yeah, they're not godly. Yeah, they, they can possibly be Christian or they can possibly be good. They, they, they're inherently wrong. They're inherently bad. And I think it's so easy to point the finger at someone you don't understand and to assume that they're something because you're scared, because you're unknowing about what they're doing because you haven't really met them. And I, I think the strongest thing that I can take away from my experiences as a youth was the friendships I made and the connections I made with people who were different than me, because like, I left home completely, fostered an attitude in me to not look down on others as, as much as I can. I mean, I, I truly became really open towards people of different sexual orientations, people of different faith, people like I just... I just started to see like the humanity in, 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 in these people, in, in all, all people. And I started to have that as a touch point for getting to know people. And like, 
I'm really glad that God ripped this judgmental Jezebel spirit out of me like this, you know, like this, this mean, like stereotype kind of framing spirit. Like, I'm so glad because I look at the way I thought as a teenager, and I think I, I can't believe I thought so harshly about other people that were different than me. I just, so I, I think in some sense, I, I really like what God did to this experience. Um, you kind of touched on this a little bit. So I'd be curious to hear. So, you know, you've experienced addiction and homelessness as a youth. And you talked a little bit about, you know, how that changed how your perspective was. And there's such a stigma still, like even I think like there's been probably great strides as far as people's understanding of like mental health, homelessness, addictions compared to what it used to be, but it still is huge. What do you wish that people who like have never experienced anything like that knew about those issues and like also the people that struggle with them, which many of which you have met? Yeah. So I I would like people to know that those who struggle with addiction are struggling with real suffering and they aren't using drugs daily because they are inherently bad, wrong, immoral people. They're people who are first and foremost people. They're human beings and they got really hurt. Something bad happened and they might not tell you, you might not see it, but they either experienced generational issues sexual assault, trauma of different sorts, mental health issues. Like there is a root to their problem. And it's, and if, if people knew the root, maybe they wouldn't judge as much, but they don't need to know the root if it's private. I mean, there are reasons. There are valid reasons why people become addicted to drugs. It's not merely a behavioral issue. Yeah. Behaviors certainly need to change. Yeah. There are behaviors that could be replaced with better behaviors, for sure. And, and those are things that are explored in the recovery process. But I, I just wish people knew that they're, they're human beings and they're, they're sick. People that use drugs are, 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 aren't healthy. They need help. You wouldn't like put down someone who broke their arm and say, oh man, like just get over it. Stop breaking your arm. No, you'd think, okay, what happened? What what happened here? And let's like make sure it doesn't happen again. Also, here's your treatment. It's a cast and maybe some painkillers or whatever, or like a, I don't know, a hug. And uh, I also would like people to know that it's not easy to help someone who's struggling with addiction. And I don't think it's wise for people to dive in the waters they, they haven't swam in before and think that they're not going to be to- torn back and forth by the current. If you want to help someone who is in addiction, then you need to seek professional help. You do. Because you can make things a hell of a lot worse for yourself and for them if you go on adventures of trying to help people because you want to feel good about yourself. Because that's an exhausting journey. And I see lots of people being burnt out by that, especially when they try to take it on as a hobby. Like, I'm going to fix my friend's problems. Really? You're going to fix your friend's problems? Yeah, right. You've got your own problems. In fact, you probably haven't solved them yet. Like, you know, I, I mean, there, there's a level of naivety that I think people bring. And that's okay when they venture on to a new topic, especially if it's important, like helping others. But it doesn't replace becoming informed. Like, if you don't know something about something as complex as addiction, 
and think you're just going to waltz into somebody's life as someone who's probably quite volatile and heal them, then you, you got to be kidding me. Like, give me a break. You're, you're, you're probably going to make things at best worse and, and at worst completely destroy whatever you're trying to, to solve. Like I've just seen that a lot in churches, like people have like really good intentions. Like I've seen that within different church communities I've encountered and I've seen that with different faith groups as well, who tried to go down the teen challenge route and like, you know, like try to be something they're not. When, when you try to be somebody you're not, or be something you're not, that's when things can go wrong. And I'm not saying that I am the know-it-all. I'm not, I'm not really an expert in this field either. Like I am at the cusp of learning what it means to help someone through addiction. Like I'm new. I'm new at this, but I have done some research and I've, and I've studied and I've worked in the field for a while now. And I know enough to say that having good intentions is not good enough. I, I And unfortunately, I, I've seen some people in my life who I've either tried to overhelp someone who's struggling with addiction and underhelp. And like both of those things aren't good. Hopefully that wasn't too negative. No, no. I think it's, it is good. <laughs> it is really good because I think like, I think even of my experience with like when I was in high school, I'd walk by the smoker's pit and I would hold my breath so I wouldn't inhale cigarette smoke because I thought it was gross and kids should just make better decisions. That was me, right? Fair. Then I walked like <laughs> then, no, I mean that makes sense. Yeah, but when I started working at Youth Unlimited YFC and I was ex- like in a whole new world and actually getting to know students who I actually love right? I love them. And they're like, their life is falling apart. Like they are broken and they are hurting. Um, and so like addicted to drugs, you know, like, do we like, yeah, it's just hard, right? It is really difficult. Um, I'm really thankful that God has grown empathy in me. I'd, I've never wrestled with drug addiction. I know drugs can mess you up. I've been there. But what you said is really important because they often think that we, we just kind of sugarcoat it. Like the process of walking with people through addiction is really, really messy. And it's not for all of us, myself included. Right. Um, So thank you. That that's really, really important. Um, You're talking about people helping or maybe doing some more damage than good, but what were some helpful things that people did for you to support you and encourage you um, through addiction, through homelessness, through, yeah, the difficult things that you've, that you've experienced. Yeah. I, I had a number of, of, of people who had different approaches to helping me. And I'm so grateful that there are people who take the lives of youth seriously and have devoted their time and energy to creating opportunities for struggling youth. And I will say one of the biggest things that helped me as someone who struggled with addiction as a youth was uh, people who worked at housing um, projects, whatever, like homeless shelters, like they helped, helped provide some level of stability for me. Like I lived at different shelters, like youth shelters, and the unconditional positive regard I would receive from, from people who probably weren't making a lot of money. They, they're there because they just really want to help. And I still remember all of those people. And it was such a breath of fresh air to talk to another human being while I was addicted to drugs, not showering, smelling bad, looking bad, like just unpleasant, stealing, brutal. And then to be met with a smiling face 
and a cup of coffee and, and someone to say, Hey, how can I help you today? Like just helped me not give up. It made me realize that there are good people. And I saw God in those people. Like I saw God, like I touched the Lord with those experiences. And those weren't always Christian people. Those were just people. I, I had, like, you saw, I saw God in them, you know, like I saw the image of God. I saw like people made in God's image interacting and, and helping me. And I thought, wow, like life's worth living. I just, I just can't give up yet. And having those people show me that love really helped me not give up. Because I'll tell you one, one thing, if they weren't there, I don't think I'd be here. Another thing that helped was a little bit of tough love too. I saw a couple therapists and social workers and some of them had more of like a, like you better fix it or things are going to get worse and like kind of like try to scare me attitude. Well, you better. And I don't think that was the right response completely, but it wasn't bad as well. I mean, it was okay. The best response I received from counselors was, when I talked to them and they tried to help me realize the root causes of my addiction, like the pain. And they talked to me as if I wasn't just some creature who was horrible. They talked to me as like I was a human being. Another thing with tough love though, that really worked was my parents. They didn't put up with my bad choices. They didn't enable me to be an addict. They didn't give me a facade. And a facade would have been living with my parents, smoking weed every day, doing drugs and still having everything met, all my needs met, everything hunky-dory, because then I would not have learned. I would have continued to use, and I would have because I would have had a very comfortable setting to do so. You know, as difficult as it was, and it's not always the answer, to not let me live with them helped me out because I wasn't enabled. And there's a fine line between enabling someone and also just showing them kindness, right? Sometimes it's uh, when we approach the, the topic of helping others, it can be enabling. And sometimes it can actually just be kind. And I think it's hard to determine or differentiate between the two, especially when you're working with someone who's struggling with addiction. Um, to kind of bring things maybe to a little bit of a more positive light, because obviously you've come through some of those things, went through Teen Challenge. That was like your... How old are you now? You're not, you went to Teen Challenge at 18. I'm 27 plus tax. 27 plus tax. Nice, nice. Um, so, I mean, you've done schooling since then and worked since then. So, um, and I mean, it's so cool to hear you say like when you were in the midst of your like homelessness and addiction and you were like, if I get out of this, I want to help these people. I think that's so cool. And you are doing that. Um, so do you want to just talk a little bit about you in the caring profession, what you do now, maybe some of your schooling and stuff like that to give sure. people better understanding the, the yeah. light at the end of the tunnel? <laughs> so first and foremost, right now I'm a student and I'm so grateful to be a student. I love what I'm studying. I'm working on a master's part-time at Martin Luther University College, which is um, situated at Laurier and I'm working on a master's of arts in psychotherapy and spiritual care and I'm really enjoying the classes and I've really enjoyed learning how to work with people in a counseling setting. I And my long-term goal is to become a registered psychotherapist and to do addictions work. I wanna work with youth in the long run I, like that's why I stayed at Youth Unlimited for four years because I, I really have a soft spot for youth and I I really do enjoy working with youth. I, it's 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 tremendous. It's so important. 
currently right now I work at a rehab in Alora called Portage and I haven't been there that long. I've only been there since September and it's an amazing place. I mean, I really I really do get to see a lot of youth come through the doors and learn new skills and learn how to get along with people better and to deal with their underlying issues that have caused them to use and and to emerge from the program as confident, self-aware and responsible human beings. It's really cool. And I actually went to the program as well. When I was 16, I actually went through the Portage program for five months. But I will say when it comes to like the helping professions, it's really easy to burn out if you take on too much. And uh, I've gone through a season of burnout recently. And it's taught me a lot about myself. And it's taught me what I should say yes to and what I should say no to. And it's really opened my eyes towards where I want to go with my career long term. And it's made me realize what I can and can't do. Even when I was at Youth Unlimited, there were seasons of like burnout, you know, where you just take on too much because you thought you could handle it. And sometimes life just has a funny way of reminding you that you can't do it all. So that's what I'm learning right now is how to set boundaries, how to self-care better, and how to continue down this career path in a positive way. For people who are thinking about going down the path of ministry work, counseling, social work, um, and choosing a helping profession is that there's a really important skill that's required in order to do this kind of work long-term and that I, I've realized I need help tweaking. And I've um, recently had to tweak it a little bit more. And that's being able to differentiate between your work life and your home life. And mm. it's so important to not let those two become enmeshed because it's a noble thing to venture towards helping other human beings in whatever capacity. But if there's no separation between your work life and your home life, and I by that I mean, if there's no separation between your thoughts about work, and you start to become defined only by your profession, and only by the work you do, life can become pretty bleak, pretty quickly. And it's so important to not neglect that selfish care, that that sleep time, that alone time, and to turn off the work thoughts when you get home because your life can't just be defined by by your work. It is defined by your work, but it, it, your life has to be defined by what's personal to you as well, like family, friends, your faith, your hobbies. Like, And it's so easy, especially in the helping profession, to, to neglect your self-care. And, and part of that comes from low wages. And I think that people should have their eyes wide open when it when it comes to social work and mental health counseling, you know, you, you can make a good living down the road. Like, you know, you can become a manager or you can become a, a professional and be paid per the by the hour or you can get a certain level of certification and then then be able to afford to lit to live well. But at the beginning of this road, a lot of people in helping professions often work multiple jobs and they do that in order to make ends meet. So unfortunately, the reality for many people who have ventured towards helping others sometimes um, neglect to help themselves. If I could give one piece of advice to someone venturing down that road, it would be 
say yes when it's good to say yes like when you're when you you when you're ready to give like when you got that like that girth you know where you got that love when you got that energy like give it but when that energy's not there say no you can't give what you don't have just like the well-known analogy of the airplane that's falling down to the sky and the stewardess explains that if this were to happen you need to put on an oxygen mask if the oxygen masks fall down but they always clarify, do not put the oxygen mask on someone beside you. Put it on yourself first. Because if you put it on someone else and you pass out and then you don't get it on them, you're both dead. And I think for people in helping professions, it's important to be okay with that self-care, to be okay with taking a break when you need it, and to be okay with taking care of yourself because you certainly won't be able to take care of anyone if you're not taking care of yourself first and foremost. I have overdone it over the years. Like, we're talking eight months ago, I there was one point where I worked four jobs at the same time, like I was working at a rehab part time, so working at Youth Unlimited. And I did this, this other job per week, where I was working with an individual one on one. And then on top of that, I was serving at a restaurant, then COVID hit and things changed. But as I look over what's happened over the past seven years, it's been like, non-stop work. I've been in school the whole time. I finished a degree and other programs started a master's Worked the entire way through. I like, to be honest, I overdid it. Like I laid down the groundwork for a burnout without realizing. And then eventually things that happened years ago compounded towards like not being okay, but now I'm much better. And I've figured out some of the things that needed to be readjusted. I just hope that maybe someone who is hoping to venture down this field or is maybe stuck in a place where they need to hear this. Here's this. Yeah. Um, our second last question. We are talking about story and legacy and God's faithfulness. And you can interpret this question however you would like, but what story are you hoping to write that will be told about you years down the road? I hope that down the road, people, if they are to talk about me, um, mention that, that I used humor well that that I was kind, that I, I tried my best, that was caring and empathetic, and that most first and foremost, that I was good at what I did, that I was a good helper. Okay, one question left. What is the best piece of advice you've been given? I think the best advice I've ever been given is quite simple. And I've, I've heard it a couple of times, and sometimes you hear it at first and you go, duh, but other times you hear it and you go, no, that was a good reminder. Be kind, be kind. That's the advice. Thank you so much for coming and chatting with us and sharing your story and making us laugh. And, you know, I just I think like you do such a good job of like being funny and humorous, but it's also like your story is so powerful and not just because it was hard, but also because like you came through to the other side and get to say like, yeah, other people can come to the other side, too. We appreciate you. So thank you so much for being here. And yeah. Thank you. That was such a Macklemore moment. You're like the other side. No, <laughs> <laughs> so, and thanks for having me. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We have more amazing conversations like this coming up that you won't want to miss. So make sure you subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're using. And you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Just Work Friends. Bye. Okay, bye, everybody. Happy Monday. Thanks Have for listening.